0: Searching his guitar for something new, Dave Faulkner found a group of chords. He heard the guitar saying, what's my, what's my, what's my trying to complete the phrase he added scene. And some of his best work was well underway. I'm Jane Rocker from Mushroom. This is some of my best work. was the 80s and a younger Dave Faulkner had added his take on what the music was trying to say. What's My Scene represented the frustration of figuring out your place in the world among everyone else. Dave says when you were in it you thought it was a dull time but it was the decade his band formed and looking back he witnessed a big outburst of creativity in Sydney. On album number three The Hoodoo Gurus had a song and sound that would tell everyone they were going from strength to strength. But in reality, their success was, as Dave describes, papering over the gathering issues. In March 2022, they're releasing a new album, Chariot of the Gods, along with a 40th anniversary Australian tour. Look out for those. Here's Dave Faulkner of the Hoodoo Gurus, and the story of some of his best work, What's My Scene? Firstly, thank you very much for taking part in this podcast, some of my best work, and to talk, well, there's many great works when it comes to the Hoodoo Gurus, but let's talk about What's My Scene? And um, a little about, I guess, if we can step back in time of the year you wrote it, if you recall, if you just recall those memories of how the song came to you, Dave?
1: I do remember pretty well because it's kind of, um, kind of typifies my writing actually. So I always talk about this one. So it stayed fresh in my memory for that reason alone, just uh, bringing it up now and again as an example of how things can happen and why I write the way I do. I'm a sort of songwriter that starts with the music first. There's a lot of people wonder about that, whether you write the lyrics first or, or the music first. Well, I'm, I'm in the majority. About they usually say it's about a 60-40 split. People that start with a musical idea, then come to the lyrics later, and vice versa. People that start with lyrics. So um, obviously, some things they come together, you know. And this one almost was like that. I mean, it, it basically started as that little guitar figure that you hear that opens the song, that which is the melody line of the chorus, really. A, that bit that was basically just me playing around the guitar, just just idly, you know, just looking for little things that intrigued me and um, that's around a D chord shape, which is quite a basic chord for any amateur guitarist, and so I am one of those. And so I just, you know, did this thing where I lift off one finger and it makes that little, those two, that two-note figure. Then I thought, well, how about if I do that? I like the sound of that, even though it's very simple. I just thought, oh, I like that. And then I just thought, well, what if I transpose it up a, a another whole tone from a D chord to an E chord, but with the same two notes on the top? So I did the same thing. I thought, oh, well, that sounds good. Same notes over a different chord. It has a nice little kind of tension to it. And then I thought, well, let's try that again. So let's go to a third chord. <laughs> and I went to the G chord, which are all kind of then related chords. So I knew those notes would sort of be somewhere in the kind of, you know, the harmonic spectrum of those those chords in that key. And, um, yeah, those two notes sounded good there too. And that was the, you know, and then, of course, I just added the little extra thing of like da-da, 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 da-da-da, And that was the tune right there. And that was the chorus, as it turns out. But for me, I just was, you know, playing that over and, and singing that melody in it. Seem to say those syllables to me, like, what's my, what's my. Those two notes just sound like those sort of tones to me, you know. So even though I talk about, you know, people think of lyrics and music being sort of separate things, lyrics, you know, you know, vowels and things, they have a tone and that's sort of musical and, and notes can have a rhythm and a, and a kind of a, you know, a meter that sort of sounds like speech or, you know. And so for some reason, those two things together You know, reflected each other, you know, in in, in that I just thought, what's my, what's my, what's my, well, what's next? And I'm thinking, well, what's my scene, baby? (laughs) Because, you know, because I like using those kind of archaic uh, hipster terms. Um, You know, I had like wow, wipe out, you know, so that's not, you know, I have been known to do that. And that's kind of me having a bit of a laugh up my sleeve at sort of, you know, as I say, ancient sort of, you know, old beatnik talk or hippies or whatever. You know, I sort of play around with those sort of vernacular. And, uh, then it became about what's, what am I singing about with these words, you know, and, and that sort of triggered a thing in my mind of a, a theme that I often recur to, which is, you know, I'm fairly um, puzzled by myself and how the hell I happen to be who I am and how I am and haven't kind of figured it all out yet. And so that song is about that, just figuring out my role in life and where do I fit in? And so it was a theme that was, came quite naturally to me when I, but it was prompted by a, mel- a melody ultimately.
0: And so looking back at that time now with Hindsight, I guess, and so many albums that have come since Blow Your Cool, which this was featured on, what do the 80s sort of represent to you?
1: Not much. I mean, I, I mean now I think much more fondly of the 80s. I mean, when you're in it, you thought this is kind of a dull time, you know, <laughs> because, you know, I, I was a teenager in the 70s and there were so many amazing genres of music that we're still digging into now, you know, glam rock, metal punk rock at the end of that time you know and and disco and i mean it's just it was such a fertile decade and of course the 60s we know were incredibly fertile musically in pop music i'm more excited to remember how it was when the band formed you know that was a really incredible time in the early 80s because it was after the punk rock uh, era and and you know that great flowering of of culture then and you know fashion you know punk went into fashion as well and it went into photography and you know music videos everything was seemed to be cross-pollinating and and uh everyone was inspiring each other and working together as well you know print makers were making amazing posters that were advertising gigs you know and it was just one big you know outburst of creativity and and uh it seemed like particularly where 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 we were in the inner city of sydney there was seem to be like a new rock group, you know, opening up, every, you know, beginning every week. You'd have, a, you'd have a band playing their first gig or whatever. And it'd be just people that had just picked up instruments only a couple of months earlier because that was a bit of the do-it-yourself punk ethos still influencing people then. It just seemed like everyone was doing something creative and, and we're, were inspiring each other. And uh, and it was all very under the radar as well. It was not for any purpose of, like, career building or or things like that. It really was just people... You know, expressing themselves and and being inspired by other people around them, and it was just uh, magical.
0: Maybe how the chart success, particularly of this song, that made it to I think it peaked at number two, but how that affected the band, the opportunities that came after it, because this is album number three as well.
1: It, it was a difficult album for us. I mean, people talk about the, the the sophomore jinx. The second album was always the tough one, but we actually just sailed through that. We we went through quite a development uh uh creatively on the second album we we did sort of in a sense define ourselves properly on that one I mean some people wish we'd stayed like the first album forever, but uh it was kind of a special thing that was could never be repeated really that's first album Stone Age Romeo's and it was a product of the other the that kind of kooky early eighties time I was talking about, plus the people that were in the band who went off you know two of them left you know before we we kept going and uh eventually recorded the, the album, but those songs were sort of from that earlier period, some of them. The second album was kind of us getting a bit more serious. I started becoming a little bit more personal in my writing. The first album was kind of much more cartoon-like in terms of songwriting. I was writing fictional stories around sort of ludicrous subject matter, like girls being thrown in volcanoes and, you know, things like that. So the second album, I thought I didn't want to keep doing that. I felt that that was kind of a little bit, you know, dishonest. I wanted people to think that I was actually singing about something for real rather than making it up just to fill time. So, uh, you know, that was a, we had a lot of success with the second album. We had success with the first album, though it was a bit of a sleeper. It sort of developed over a period of a year or so, actually. When it came out, no one particularly cheered and, and said, you know, here it is, the great first album of a, of a band. You know, people just said, like, oh, isn't it good they've got a record? No one thought they'd even get a record contract because people did laugh about the idea of us getting a, a record deal because we weren't an electro band, you know, like inspired by the Thompson Twins or the Human League. And that was all people wanted to sign up in those days. The second album, we, we we kind of had some success with the song Bittersweet, Like Well Wipeout, one of our biggest hits, that was on that. And that was kind of uh, – so we had a lot, of, a lot of success. And so What's My Scene really was following on from that rather than sort of changing anything. But it was a massive hit, it's true. Uh, but in a way, it papered over some of the problems we were having because in some ways we'd grown too fast and we actually had pressures from the record company to – keep the success that we'd already had and to kind of go further and, you know, break it into America and things like that. And we had a producer on the record who we didn't, a you know, mainstream producer and it wasn't right for us. We ended up suing a record company after that. So it was a very, it was a, it was an album actually of, uh, you know, transition in some ways. And, and it was almost, a we went too far in one direction, which was towards what I would call 80s, stereotypical 80s pop music. You know, it's like some of the production on that record is unlistenable to me. Um, because it sounded so cliched '80s to me in places. Um, you know, had the gated snares and things like that that uh, you know you, you hear on other '80s records like Phil Collins or whatever. Also, we as I say, we kind of lost our our um, you know sense of identity because we allowed ourselves to be well, or we got pushed in directions where we weren't really sure. You know, we weren't aware of the fact that until afterwards that we we somehow wound up somewhere different to where we thought we were. So. What's My Scene's huge success in a way, you know, sort of, as I say, papered over the cracks of that because it, it made it look like, well, there they go, they're still going on their way and becoming even bigger hits and, you know, and it's a triumph. And But, but for us it was a mixed feeling at the time because we weren't, we weren't happy with the album and and we thought the songs didn't capt- weren't captured, you know, the way that we felt them ourselves. And, in fact, the next album we ended up producing ourselves and, you know, didn't have a producer at all because we just, uh well they actually started out as demos but we ended up making the record (laughs) so that's another story but um yeah so it was a it it was a period of transition for us even though it appeared to be in the eyes of some people they've arrived now
0: (laughs) yep i love that there's the friendship there with the bangles as well maybe you for those listening, you can sort of explain how that came to be because that's a friendship that's obviously continued. It has, on,
1: yeah. yeah, very much. And, you know, I love the Bangles. I mean, um, and in some ways they had some of those same experiences as we had. Uh, I was talking about with, you know, with, with Blow Your Cool, you know, where they had a producer on their record, in fact, that um, almost, um, you know, produced in spite of the band rather than with the band, you know, and he kind of brought other musicians in to do different parts and and, you know, they were feeling a bit you know un, out of control of their destiny as well at times so there was a common ground there but that wasn't the reason we, had, we were friends we actually uh, met through a, we had the same um, agency in america uh booking agency and we were, we were booked to do a tour together and it was their second album and our second album marcy's guitars and their second album was different light and uh we were doing a co-headline because the, both bands were quite big in the uh, sort of the underground alternative sort of college scene they called it, but it's basically indie music, and and um, we were playing a lot of campuses and you know it was and it was, it was and we were actually going to swap places on the, each each night, so we were going to open one night, then they are going to open the next night, and that's how it was planned. But just before the tour um, began. Uh, they released Manic Monday <laughs> as a single and it was just roaring up the charts. And it, in fact, I think about the third week of the tour, it went to number one in America. But, you know, as, even as the tour began, it was like, okay, well, the Bangles are, you know, basically going to be opening, I mean, closing each show because they're, they're huge right now. They've got this sudden breakthrough success. And, uh, you know, but the same thing was, I mean, sorry, the, for the two bands themselves, like we really liked each other as musicians and as music and we felt we went well together anyway um because the bangles come from a kind of a similar uh place as we do uh many ways they they love pop music they they have a strong uh love of of the 60s psychedelia as well and you can sort of hear that in everything they've done and their stuff is probably, probably more folk boom inspired you know the the folk rock whereas we're kind of more sort of 60s punk psychedelic uh rock you know it, it, but you know there's a lot lot more in both bands from other areas as well but those are a place where we both meet musically, and we lo- we definitely like each other's music, and we liked each other as people as well. So um, it was just yep. a wonderful uh, time, and and, uh, th- and it was great touring with the uh, the big number one stars of the of that moment, and having Prince sort of like dogging their steps everywhere because he was trying to chase Susanna, and she was kind of you know leading him on quite well because um, he wrote <laughs> Manic Monday, of course. But, um, yeah, and uh, the last show of that tour was fantastic. We played at the Greek Theatre in Los Angeles, a very legendary venue, which is where Neil Diamond recorded Hot August Night, which is was for many years, I might even still be, the greatest selling album in Australian history. Every They reckon one in three homes had a copy of Hot August Night. Yeah. And uh, so we actually used Hot August Night as our intro music, you know, the opening of that that uh, record, if anyone knows that, with the orchestra playing and then Neil comes on to the tunes of Crunchy Granola Suite. That was our intro as we walked on stage. So we, we felt a certain kind of, uh, you know, rock and roll anointing or something from the Greek theatre.
0: Yep. Could I ask if you can remember working on this song or recording it in the studio and what it was like, even the, at the in the very earliest stages, sharing the song with the rest of the band too?
1: Well, not so much sharing it with the rest of the band, um, and recording it. Uh, it went well, but we'd already kind of include in that this song was going to be, you know, a, an important one, a single, probably because we we before we did re- record the album, we went up to um, the Barrier Reef, up to you know the dirt, um, tropical north of Queensland, and uh, did some shows up at Early Beach under a false name because we wanted to try out some of our new material and uh, just you know play them a few times live so we get a feel for how they sound and also just get, you know, just kind of nut out your parts a bit better so you, you kind of know what you're doing and, and confident that's you, how you want to play it. So we did some shows under a false name so we could play all these new songs rather than having to, you know, only play the songs that people were paying to see, so to speak, if they had your, your Hoodoo Gurus show. The first night, I, I hadn't finished the lyric of but What's My Scene? So I was in the hotel room um, and uh, just dashing off the, you know, the words The second verse about, you know, the talent scout always checking out New Blood, all that, those, that second verse I had to write that day. And I said, because I wanted to sing the song that night. Anyway, we played the song, and straight away after the show, people were coming up and saying, What was that song about? What's my scene? What was that? They were all talking about it. And, you know, just having heard us play it live once, they just. You know, it just it's just inspired people a bit, and that doesn't happen often. You know, sometimes people come and say, "I loved your show," but just sort of name one song and say, "You know, that song is a killer." Doesn't happen a lot. Yeah. So that was a that was quite unusual, and you know, I mean, as an artist, you don't know yourself. You love a song. I mean, I, you know, when I write them, I, I'm I, they're all catchy hits to me. But even when they're kind of dirgy and you know deliberately ugly, there's something about them that you know excites me. So I'm really you know, and I'm. They're stuck in my head for days but I can't possibly imagine whether someone else would feel the same way um, and it's only when you sort of get that feedback that and you and you play in front of people that you kind of feel the energy that it's creating in the room yeah it's a bit like you know filmmakers always talk about that they make a film and they think it's a great movie but they, by the time they've finished it they can't really even see the film properly anymore because they're so they see all the bits where they changed it and you know they they're too close to it to kind of see it for the first time you know as a an artistic Thing you know, as one one statement, yeah. they see it you know the process as well as the, as the result. So um you know, and then often they make it. that think it's a great movie, and it gets to the audience. And the audience just hates it, you know. <laughs> so you know, we've done that. You know, songs happen that way as well. And you know, when it when it goes well, it is quite special. You don't you know because you you always surprised by it. We knew we uh had a live one, so to speak, you know, and and we and and it just kept sounding great in the studio. The things we did to it. I mean, I I do have to give credit to our producer, who I don't want to talk about. He did do one thing on that song, which was my inclination would have been to play the opening riff on an acoustic guitar. And he had a bit of a he personal, never-liked acoustic guitar. He thinks they sound wussy or something, and he didn't like it. Now, it might have been fine an acoustic, but instead he got me to play it on an electrified acoustic called Novation guitar. And it just has a certain kind of br- brightness and metallic quality to it that is different to an electric because it has an acoustic quality, but it's also sort of more hopped up and more, you know, kind of savage than acoustic. It's not, it's not uh, soft and folky, you know. So, and that was a really great sound to start the record with. It does straight away just jumps in at you with that sound. But as far as like playing it to other people again afterwards, we already were kind of, you know, out there. It was just like adding the songs to our set, and they seemed to work well. That was obviously working well. It was the first song we released off the album, so it was a, it was a hit when we before we even toured. So it was already a kind of like in a way a classic straight away, and you know, and and those songs that those sort of those landmark songs, whatever those 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 I don't know those big ones. Yeah, <laughs> the big ones. they do lift to show up because you know they're songs that even fans that aren't that familiar with their work they've heard that song and they and that gets them going and they go this is what I came to see and because this is what made me buy a ticket and this is a song I like or whatever you know in that case if it's a current hit. Your show kind of gains more momentum with those songs. That song from the get go was obviously, uh, you know, acceleration yeah. in the energy level as soon as we played it every time. Mm-hmm.
0: just talk about the video clip because i guess also at the time of this particular song what's my scene i mean video clips were everywhere it's like a song yeah. came out and there were clips can you remember making the video clip did you have much input into what you wanted to do
1: yeah it was my idea but, um when i was a kid there used to be these things on uh, with the cornflakes packets i'm not sure yeah. in, the, in the box where you'd, they'd have uh, these sort of games you could cut out this thing where you could uh, put the legs of a frog man onto the, the torso of a ballerina and the, you know that it was like a mix and match thing with you know top middle and bottom of these characters and you you know they'd fold out you know little panels and you and you'd fold one across and put the you know mix and match the the you know, the different parts of the various you know stereotypical figures these cartoon figures and so um i remembered that i at the time as you know i never i just i just remember that as being something funny and 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 the song about you know identity and where do i fit in or what should i what's my role it just made sense to put something like that, where we are kind of, you know, mixing and matching our identities um, through these costumes. And um, that was, you know, the video maker, John Witteron and Tony Stevens, uh, who did most of our videos in our career. Um, they were brilliant. They worked on lots of other famous Australian rock videos, and, and I think they should go on the ARIA Hall of Fame, actually, their, um, for their contribution to Australian music. You know, they did the Down Under video, and so many, you know, go-betweens. They did so many different things. Um, but anyway, the uh, What's My Scene video, what we had was three wardrobe people um, who, you know, they had a racks and racks of costumes which they'd hired from, obviously, a costume hire place. And, um, and so one person was basically getting out of the – was being taken – helped out of the costume they'd just been filmed in, you know, because we were being filmed one at a time. It was a conven- – it was like a production – like a, you know, a conveyor belt, the way it was being done. They changed the coloured background of paper behind the, the you know the performer, and, and while and three of us were getting ready while one of us was being was filming. So basically, you know, one of us is getting in a costume, one of us is being taken out of the costume by the wardrobe person, and then the second person was being having their makeup done to go with the costume. and The third person, you know, like it was it was constant, and th- and those wardrobe people worked their butts off all day because it just didn't stop, you know, because it's just you know you're shooting thirty seconds at a time, you know, whatever, and you and it's just Round and around the whole the whole day shooting, um, and it was crazy. And I remember at the end of the day, all that was left on the racks that we hadn't used yet, because we you know we just chucked on every costume there was, um, was a, um, I think it was a ballerina's tutu. And I so like I was kind of like well I was next one up, so I chucked on the tutu, and as soon as I did, all of the crew started running for their cameras. <laughs> And I said, no, 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 no. This, I don't think this will work. Because <laughs> if it looks that good to you right now that it, you really want a photo of this stupidity, I may regret this one day. <laughs> so instead I re- I'm so from that video, I remembered as being the the, the crazy Monsignor as my role that most stood out, I think. Yep. Um, I think Brad was famous for being Elvis. I mean, Mark was famous for being the Viking and, and, this, and Superman and whatever. Mark was always a cut up. Clyde was, I think, a Hasidic uh, Jew. As was his character, it was one of his his most famous role. So we all we all had certain roles that seemed to stick to us. Yes. But I think the, I think the tutu might have been my <laughs> my undoing. Imagine if,
0: if there were <laughs> iPhones back then, hey?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, as I say, they were looking <laughs> for the equivalent. You know, there weren't iPhones, but they were they were grabbing their their instamatics or whatever the hell they had. And uh, yeah, I got out of that that tutu before they could snap it for posterity.
0: <laughs> that is so funny. Could I ask you, Dave, how fame and recognition changed you, being recognised on the street and then progressively becoming more famous?
1: Yeah, well, it does. Obviously, you can't uh, you, you can't insulate yourself from it. You can't predict how you'll feel or what will happen. Yeah, I mean, I've had all sorts of weirdness things, you know, that you'd expect, you know, sort of stalkers and, you know, people following you home, trying to, you know, find where you live and things like that. It's quite, it's quite peculiar. Mostly it's 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 quite... Inoffensive people, just you know, they recognise you and they think you know they might even say something nice to you. I really like your band, you know. Or very rarely does someone sort of yell at you and call your names, um, you know, and abuse you. Which you know, public figures do arouse all sorts of feelings, you know, from people. Some people love you, some people hate you. But generally speaking, people don't tend to attack us. I know whether they do that to other people, but for me though, I didn't like the feeling of being visible everywhere I went. I I had a very strong memory there was a a, an incident i still regret to this day where i was over in new orleans with some friends i've I've got a lot of friends american friends you know basically from touring but also i spent some time there before the band started i I traveled around when i was 21 and spent a long time in the states and made some friends then that i still have um and i was down in new that new orleans uh the jazz and heritage festival and and it's a huge outdoor show it's a bit like the big day out or whatever you know this big festival type thing and um some Australians there were there and sort of clocked me and, you know, recognized me, came up and started, you know, hi, Dave Faulkner, from Gurus, how are you? You know, and it, and I was sort of feeling like, oh God, I was having a relaxed time being myself in an anonymous place, you know, because, you know, the Hoodoo Gurus was not as well known in America. We had a bit of success, but not like that. And, you know, so I was feeling, you know, very, you know, just with my friends drinking and having fun. And suddenly it's like, oh, I'm that guy, aren't I? I have to sort of, and it just made me feel really inhibited, and I sort of was a bit you know, unpleasant about it because, you know, like, I'm just having, you know, excuse me, I'm just trying to have some fun with my friends, do you mind, you know, sort of, you know, which was stupid of me because they weren't trying to bother me. They just were kind of chuffed that they saw a fellow Australian and also someone whose music they liked, and, you know, it was just like being friendly, but it just struck me wrong that at that moment. Yep. And uh, that... So that's the bad side where you actually have to feel like, you know, so you you could be in the supermarket and your song comes on the, on the, over the speakers on the the supermarket. You're going like, oh, that's right. People will look around and say, oh, there's that guy whose music I'm hearing now. They'll put it together, you know? It's a weird thing where you, as I say, you feel like a spotlight suddenly gone on you. Or even like walking into a club and a DJ will play your song, you know, on the, on the, you know, you're suddenly like, oh, God, I've been spotted, you know? (laughs) You know, some people would love that, but, For me, I hated it. I just wanted to kind of just be, you know, because you you cease to actually be observer anymore. You know, you you, you are now, you being observed instead of someone who can actually just watch other things and, you know, take things in. You're kind of being taken in instead and you have kind of, you sort of, you have to go within yourself and kind of protect yourself. So it's a weird thing. I didn't like it. I've come to grips with it and I recognize that, you know, it's stupid the way I carried on with those people at the jazz festival and, and other occasions maybe where I've been, you know, less, you know, enamored at being recognized. And it's like, well, these people mostly don't want to bother you. They just want to say hello and thanks, you know, often. And it's it's really, you know, no big deal. Just kind of get over yourself, basically, (laughs) is what I tell myself, you know.
0: Yeah. The year that you were, as a band, inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame, and I know you're not in a band to ever get any of those sort of, you know, moments happening. But I wonder, reflecting on that, how that made you feel.
1: Yeah, well, actually, I was against even agreeing to it because we're not huge fans of those sorts of industry things. We've never been part of the mainstream. Like, as I said, when we got our first record contract, the industry, so to speak, if you can think of it as a monolithic thing, were quite, you know, uh, you know, sceptical of it. They thought we were it was ridiculous we got a contract. How do you, Who's going to sign these guys up? What are they doing? Because we weren't part of that sound and that, you know, what was considered to be commercial and, and uh, you know, was the, the, the correct thing for our industry to be supporting and, you know, we, we just, we've we never had that. We've always been quite kind of mavericks in our own way and that applies to pretty much every area of the industry, including the alternative indie side who will have their own kind of, you know, pecking order and, you know, and uh, people who think they're the power players that dictate the taste of the world. So, you know, we've never really um, abided by anyone's particular criteria, uh, just by our own only. The other thing is, you know, we've never been nominated for an ARIA award before that. You know, for all the success we'd had and all the records we'd made, you know, I mean, I mean admittedly, some of our early part of our career, Aria wasn't even, there wasn't really an awards going. I think it wasn't until 87 they started yep. um, doing it properly, which was a year of, uh, of What's album, My Scene yeah. and Blow Your, yeah, that album. You know, we're talking about many years later now, and we've done lots of records, you know, it had lots of success and, um, you know, and Aria had always kind of still had us in the, well, they're not really our thing, are they? Uh, basket, you know, and as I said, the only the only nomination we ever got for aria uh, for an aria award was for album cover, yeah, <laughs> which wow. is honestly, you know, nice. so it wasn't us that designed yeah. that, you know, so you know, whereas whereas you know, people think of aria awards these days, they go like, oh, well, you know, you, you bring bring out a good album, you'll probably get six aria awards because that does happen, yes. you know. And they, they fall over themselves trying to show how underground they are and, you know, I'm, we're really up to date with what's happening in scene, you know. Mm. As I say, I was a little bit um, like, well, what do we want to have that for? We, that, we've never really liked what they say anyway, so why should we take their say-so now as being important to us? But, you know, the other guys wanted to uh, do it and I, so I sort of agreed, you know, and, and I thought, well, you know, it's fair enough for our families and people that, that know us and have been through this with us It's in a way a recognition of their contribution or, you know, they can see, you know, that it's been for something. You know, it is some sort of rite of passage or something, I suppose. So uh, that's why I agreed to do it. And, you know, it wouldn't have mattered if I'd, you know, if the majority would have ruled anyway. But, you know, I was saying, okay, let's do it, fine. And I got up there and it was really quite amazing because I was quite moved actually uh, in having it. Not so much, again, because of it being ARIA and being told by the industry, hey, it's okay, we like you. You know, he's a he's a prize. It was more the fact that I stood around and looked at the other guys and just thought, wow, we really have done this, haven't we? We've 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 done this career, and we we're all here together, and we've done this thing, and it is something, you know, that's undeniable, you know." And I was I was surprised that I had such strong emotional uh, response to that, and I guess it is, you know, being proud, I suppose, of of you know, of having done something that that even if it is for something that I may not respect as an institution, it's because of the fact that we are undeniably part of this world and we've done something that people noticed.
0: Well, let's link this now back to obviously you've got a new album, Chariot of the Gods, that is coming out in March. A little about writing songs is what you do. Is there an element from this era of songwriting that has continued on in everything you've done, Dave?
1: Well, I mean... Well, I am the person I always was, you know, yeah. writing, and, and I've, I've, I think I've gotten better at it, but, you know, there's certain happy accidents that you can't have twice, you know, and so What's My Scene, for example, you know, as I say, that little opening riff, it can only be written once, and in that, in those words and the way it all worked seamlessly, that, you know, to me it's it's almost the archetypal Dave Faulkner song. If I could write every song as well as that one, I'd be a very happy man because, you know, it's got so much juice in it, that song, it's, it's is even the bridge could be a chorus it's so strong you the vid, you know the bridge about you know um you know they say they say make it love you can make it pay i mean that's catchy in itself that that's like a you know it's such a memorable part of a song so there's no there's no kind of uh wastage in that song it's all like just driving and and immediate and just you know it, it just seems to all work seamlessly together so that's something i go for anyway as a writer i just want the songs to be as economical as possible and to there's also a conversational approach the lyrics I've always gone for where I'm not trying to be mysterious and and have people puzzle out afterwards what did he say what did he mean I want them to actually know what I meant they still have to wonder what does the import of it mean you know what's the actual overall message and what do I feel about that but as far as I don't want them to be questioning what does actually those words together actually talk about you know what's that they because some writers do that they they write with images that you kind of get an impression of things and it could be anything really or it could be about something so I don't do that I mean sometimes I do but by and large I tend to almost write as I say conversationally where I'm speaking to you hoping you understand what I'm saying and you know then you'll maybe register what I mean and what I'm trying to communicate which is different to the actual words I'm using as far as has it changed my writing no I mean I feel like Punk rock was a very big thing for me as a teenager. It it was a crucible that made me value economy and and uh, and and energy and and a feeling of things not just sort of ha- floundering or you know just laying inert. I like things to be kind of have an energy about them, as I say, you know, certain certain sort of vib- vibrancy. And uh, we even as a ballad, you know, it's I, I it's still got to kind of develop and. And I, like song, yeah, I do like songs that do develop. I like them to actually not just be the first verse times three, you know, and that the third verse actually is, is a conclusion of a thought or, in fact, even might even be an inversion of the idea that it kind of, you know, it's, a, it's a, almost like a, an argument, so to speak, you know, which you're going through as you hear the lyrics and they they develop. So that's something else I focus on. So, I don't know, uh, it hasn't changed, you know, it's just it's just you change yourself, you know, you, you, as a person, I mean, I'm writing about things now. I mean, what's my scene is about a per, a, a young man who's still very childish in his mind. And I'm, and I'm still the same really, but very unsure of himself, you know, you've grown up physically, but you're still really all at sea in many emotional areas of your life. And, you know, now I'm older, I, I don't quite feel as puzzled by myself. I am more self-accepting. And so, my songs talk about that on the new album, for example, there's songs of almost of defiance of like you know whatever you think of me, I'm doing this anyway, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and so you know that there's that kind of stuff that comes out, good old punk rock,
0: yeah, but you know mm-hmm. it,
1: but it's it's not it's not it's not about it's not it's not aggressive, it's just that it's saying you get to the point as you say when you get older, you go, well, you know, I can't please people necessarily, you know, just you know it's too late for that, I've just got to do what's right for me, and you know if, i'm I'm trying to be good to them, but If they insist on taking umbrage at at me being myself, well, I can't help that. You know, I'm just me. And you try to to be a better person, but, uh, you know, you can't be someone else's person. You've got to be yourself.
0: And obviously with the release of this, it's ahead of the band's 40th anniversary tour. So it must be great to know that you're going to be back on the road in April.
1: We are very happy about that. I I do hope it, you know, all goes ahead as planned. It looks like we might be in trouble in WA still because of the uh borders being a little bit uh, difficult right now, but um we'll see if that changes in the next couple of weeks. Um certainly the rest of the tour seems to be like it's going to be fine. Yeah, it's it's you know, it's what we do. We just love music and and knowing that we've got a, a new album that's so important for us. You know, we we haven't been able to do one for a long time because for a lot of reasons, one being that our drummer Mark wanted to retire. He didn't want to do a new record because he thought that would be prolonging his agony of having to tour too much. <laughs> so so he wasn't really interested in that. And so, that, you know, and it took us a long time to figure out that was really what was happening, you know, and we, and we also didn't know whether we could continue after Mark left, so we didn't really want to force the issue. As it happens, you know, we found a great drummer, Nick, and we're really excited by the way we sound together. So that's been a, a new lease on life for us creatively as well. Having new songs and having, you know, a feeling of like we're doing it legitimately because we have something to say right now rather than, you know, we used to be something and come and see us again, you know, that's not really what we're about. You know, we, we're as I say, we're about making a statement of being the best thing people have ever seen in their lives right now and some songs that they need to hear.
0: So exciting. Very looking forward to it, Dave, and thank you so much for taking part in this podcast and talking about What's My Scene. What an absolute privilege. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jane, and uh, it still works for us, that song. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to some of my best work. I'm Jane Rocker.